Hi, welcome to the Wellness Doctors Podcast with Dr. Lorena and Dr. Vanessa. We are both medical doctors who talk about how to optimize health and well-being so that you can be empowered to make better healthy choices, enrich the lives of people around you and join us in the evolution of healthcare. Hi. Hi, everyone. Yeah, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Well, I will be probably past Happy New Year, but yeah. we are in 2020 now. And when this now. comes out, it'll be Happy Chinese <laughs> New Year. Yeah, so we've got two New Years here in Hong Kong, the Western, Chinese, uh, the Western New Year, and this year's Chinese New Year is actually on the yeah, 25th of January, one, I think. Because sometimes it's usually in February. Well, we also and have Diwali. We so also have, we have a lot of other cultures here. So we yeah. can constantly be celebrating <laughs> <Yeah>. New Year's. <laughs> so. so that's uh, pretty great. And the time's gone by really quickly because I'm back at work. And yeah. I know you are as well. And um, we're back into talking about nutrition and diet and also looking at what's ahead in yeah. 2020. So today we decided to pick a quite a controversial topic to cover because we felt we've done a few diets now. We've done the low carb, the ketogenic. Um, we felt we can't not touch on the topic of a vegan diet. Yeah, and also because I heard about the documentary, the docu-series, yeah. Uh, the called the game changer. Although I have to admit, I have not watched it yet, but I actually have watched the podcasts uh, talking about the different aspects of a vegan vegan diet um, on Joe Rogan and also with Chris Cresser. So I found the discussions between the both of and them actually a, quite interesting. Part two, which is so I think Joe and Chris and James Wilkes, which who is the uh, one of the producers, and so that became even more mm. heated because now he's in a position to defend the documentary. And, uh, documentary. It was a full-on <laughs> four-hour verbal MMA. <laughs> and it's, it's, well, this is why I say it's a controversial topic because people are very passionate about it and people hold very strong mm. beliefs around it on either side. And so mm-hmm. we don't want to really mm-hmm. wade into the controversies over animal welfare or environmental impact or religious reasons, but f- focusing more on what's a good um, way to do a vegan diet and how to find out if it's the right thing for you mm-hmm. and also how to personalize it. Yeah, because the actual uh, podcast, those two podcasts was over six hours so there's a lot of research and evidence that's been presented on both sides for, uh, I think what it is, is uh, ultimately that they both agreed on the fact that a plant-based diet is good for everyone. But whether everyone should be 100% plant-based, I think that is still up for debate. So I think it's important for us to define what we mean by plant-based vegan vegetarian um so bit pescatarian flexitarian <laughs> there's so many different variations of yeah, so this type of diet i guess different people have different ideas about what a vegan diet is and i remember when i was in uh, secondary school this is more than two and a half decades back when i was in the uk i first came across this concept <laughs> of not eating animal produce because we had a teacher who didn't have any 
animal foods, and she didn't wear anything that came from an animal, so no leather, no wool. And I thought at the time, oh, okay, mm-hmm. that's kind of a a strange concept to me. Uh, but it wasn't a very popular mm-hmm. idea, I guess, at the time. But now everybody talks about. Um, at least knows about the the concept of a vegan diet, which um, most people mm. would think, oh, it's just eating plants. But actually, that's not really the whole mm. definition because you could also be a not so healthy vegan by just eating bread or just drinking alcohol or just mm. eating sugar. <laughs> so I guess what yeah. we're talking about here today is someone who eats. Hundred uh, percent plants, and they're mostly whole plants, so not highly refined and processed mm-hmm. foods. So not just corn chips and mm-hmm. you know pizza crusts. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's important to define that because there's a lot of misconception and also a lot of marketing nowadays on vegan products. And a lot of the things that you see on the shelf, obviously, there is processing involved. And that's again another layer of issues um, that we might not have time to go into. But if we focus on the whole plant and the benefits of a whole plant diet, I think we can gather that there um, a lot of evidence and studies also point out to that. So benefits of lowering blood pressure, being able to reverse heart disease, uh, managing diabetes. And also in terms of uh, autoimmune conditions, feeding the gut microbiome. Yeah. So because, you know, the standard American diet is very, very uh, substandard in fiber intake. I don't, uh, a lot of people are not really meeting their daily fiber intake. So having a plant-based diet. I just felt sorry for the Americans because they always get pointed out. Like oh yeah, the standard, <laughs> we yeah, should we should say standard modern, modern, modern diet, standard Australian <laughs> diet, and even like standard Asian diets these days. You know, the the rate of obesity going up in Asia mm. is astronomical because suddenly there's this whole influx of fast foods and you know uh, industrialized food. So I I yeah. apologize to any Americans out there. We're not picking on you. <laughs> we're talking about. The, we're not. We're not uh, picking yeah, on you. The we're the just modern <laughs> diet. yeah, the standard modern diet. Well, a lot of the studies the US, on health so are done that's why in the US the and in the Western diet. society. So, yeah. Sorry. yeah. <laughs> but it is translated sorry. into no. the Asian um, countries here yeah, as sorry well. Sorry, I interrupted you. I just had a random thought. <laughs> no, it's true. We don't want to offend anybody. We're, we're all Despite inclusive. T- so. I'm barking on a, on a controversial topic. We'll try and make sure everybody's <laughs> understands our position is not to offend anyone. We're just trying to discuss a topic which we also feel very strongly about yeah Mm. and again the modern diet is about convenience as well so a lot of package a lot of quick fast foods that don't really have a lot of different greens and whole plants so I think having an increase in your fiber intake but also in terms of the different variety of antioxidants that you can get from plants not just uh, vegetables, but also fruits are included as well because these types of plants have different colors and the colors actually give them properties that create the antioxidant actions in our bodies. So red tomatoes, uh, purple potatoes to yellow pumpkins um, and cabbages and 
your fruits like blueberries and strawberries, all of these types of different colors actually exert uh, important and I think this uh, is where plants definitely win out over meat or animal produce because you will be very hard pressed to find animal produce that offers the same amount and uh, density of polyphenols and antioxidants um, and fiber. So that's why also cutting mm. out plants completely is not, not a good idea, but that's for another topic. Another day. So, in terms mm. of what you just mentioned, I think plants definitely has a very important role in our diet. Um, and then we can talk about things like other nutrients, like vitamins and minerals, and I guess amino acid profiles. Yeah. So, in terms of when we talk about minerals, <clears throat> vitamins, I think in plants we also get a really good source of magnesium. And potassium, and these nutrients are really important for heart health, for blood sugar regulation, and also in terms of balancing the acidity of our bodies. So it actually assists in the kidneys and other organs in balancing the pH in our blood and also in our cells. So a lot of plant-based foods are rich in calcium as well, which is really important for the nervous system function. So I think it's important to be able to obtain a variety of these minerals from different sources. But, um, if you obtain these minerals from plants, say, for example, you eat beans and lentils and nuts and seeds, these plants have defense mm. mechanisms because they want to keep these minerals when they sprout or grow into a new plant. So that's what we yeah. call anti-nutrients mm-hmm. or lectins. And so lectins are mm-hmm. almost like the mm-hmm. plant's way of fending off insects that want to eat them too much. So they're kind of mildly poisonous. So that because poisonous, they can't run away yeah. from the predators, right? So they will make these compounds mm. to make the animals that try and eat them a little bit sick so they'll stop eating them. And when humans eat them, we mm. have a similar effect. It's just that the amount doesn't cause us any fatal diseases, but it can still generate a small amount mm-hmm. of inflammation. So how does that mm. impact our absorption of these minerals? Because if you look at the packaging or the, um, you know, the content of, uh, say, a packet of beans, it'll say, oh, you have all these uh, mm. recommended daily values of zinc and calcium and, and all these things, but are we able to absorb them? And is there any way that we can improve the bioavailability of these minerals? Yeah, it's interesting. I looked into this when I actually wanted to vary my diet a little bit, include more different types of plant proteins. So I think traditionally the way that beans and legumes are cooked and prepared is that they're actually soaked for a period of time. So that actually allows some of the phytates and the lectins to be digested. And some other types of uh, beans can actually be sprouted as well before they're actually cooked. So this helps to mitigate some of the anti-nutrient effects of the plants. Um, so that's the understanding that I've had uh, from looking at the way that these cultures who predominantly like in Indian culture and the Mexican 
culture where beans and lentils are well they're soaked in quite lime and then large portion at least a day or two and yeah. then they grind them up and then they boil them and then they grind them again and boil them so it was a multi-day process to break <laughs> it all down and they inherently had this ancient wisdom of mm. how to cook them um do you know the story about yeah. uh, corn being introduced by christopher columbus back to europe tell us a story i haven't dug into whether this is actual fact or a bit of folklore but when christopher columbus um went to Amer the new americas he brought back corn and so he said oh this is a great mm -hmm. diet so food source and we should introduce it to europe so people started growing them and eating them but they weren't preparing it in the same way mm -hmm. so they would just take the whole corn stalk and just steam it or boil it and then eat the corn rather than what we that talked about mm. earlier where they were grinding it and soaking it so the lectins were actually mm. absorbing or holding on to all the minerals and sometimes even holding on to the minerals from other foods that you're eating in that meal and so these people became deficient in a certain vitamin and this vitamin when it's very depleted mm -hmm. causes symptoms of um, beriberi and so these people were bleeding, mm -hmm. they were afraid of light, they were very photosensitive. And so these people were considered vampires. And so in the Eastern mm. States where Dracula and all these stories came about <laughs> was possibly because these people started eating a lot of corn, but without preparing them properly and became vitamin deficient mm. and developed a condition that have symptoms that mimic being a vampire. Uh, being a vampire, so if you have the, an, an aspiration of being a vampire, then don't prepare your corn properly. So I think it's actually B1 deficiency. Is that um, vitamin deficiency? Perhaps because that was one of the, one of the. I mean, I'm just looking at this here. I thought it was riboflavin. That berry berry. Berry berry. Okay. Okay. So basically, what one of the B vitamins being deficient. So, yeah, I think it's actually re really important to understand that some of these ways of eating plants have evolved over time. And also the modern way of uh, the type of quality of the plants that we're getting was, is also quite different. So, so yeah, I um, also wanted to comment and say a little bit about some of the herbs and spices as well, because they are also part of uh, an important part of yeah. Uh, plant-based eating yeah and I and I also use and enjoy a lot of different types of herbs and spices so herbs are they, they again they also have some toxic effects and the interesting thing about is that is that the uh, idea of hormesis where you actually create a stress in the body allows the body or teaches the body to adapt to be able to more be more resilient to further stress. So these adaptation responses we also see when we exercise and we break down muscle tissue and we rebuild and repair them so that they're stronger, they're bigger, they're more efficient. So similar kind of things with uh, herbs and spices as well. They do have this type of hormetic response to the body. So it actually does create um, an adaptation in the way that sometimes even our genes are expressed so there are definite benefits from plants, which is beyond just the actual nutrient content itself, but how it actually encourages the yeah. body to adapt. So what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. 
Speaking of which, can I go <laughs> yeah. back and correct myself? Because it's actually niacin, which is B3, which causes pellagra in deficiencies. So they oh, cause diarrhea, okay. dementia, okay. Yep. and dermatitis. So the three Ds. Okay. <laughs> Okay. So don't trust everything a doctor says. We still have to mm-hmm. Google shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we still have to go back to our nutrient Bible to have a look at the exact yeah. um, conditions. But uh, that's a, that's the upside of being able to study it and have yeah. the resources to look it up. Okay, so that's that's great. So we can understand a bit about that. On the topic that. of vitamins, and... the very controversial thing about vegan diets is if you can get enough B12. And the second thing is vitamin D mm-hmm. and then also omega. So we mm-hmm. can tackle that one by one. So in the mo- movie Game Changers, the, the, I don't know what to say, it's not a theory, the, the idea that you can get enough B12 in a, in a vegan diet is because you can absorb it from the soil and unwashed vegetables that have bacteria mm-hmm. that produces the B12, which is where actually animals get their B12 because they mm-hmm. have, so for example, a cow has gut bacteria because it's a ruminant, it ferments and, and digests the fiber and in that has cobalt mm-hmm. and cobalt is what the bacteria yes. makes vitamin b12 which is cobalamin out of so the cobalamin. the argument was that you don't need to eat animal produce but you can get it if you eat enough soil and so the counter argument and also drinking water that hasn't been filtered and the, the soil hasn't been depleted um, but the counter argument is mm-hmm. uh, in the modern day environment you're unlikely to be able to eat enough to get enough vitamin B12. Mm. So they actually feed animals and livestock B12. So when humans eat mm-hmm. that, you're indirectly sub- uh, supplementing B12 anyway. But I guess mm-hmm. the, the argument is, is not yeah. 100% because animals do make their own B12. It's not entirely from supplementing from their livestock. And if you eat Yes. Something that's wild yeah. caught, or um, you 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 know you you actually went and hunted your own food. Those animals have never been supplemented, and they can still make enough B twelve. So in plants, mm-hmm. some people feel, oh, okay, I can eat seaweed, which has B twelve in a different format, which is more like a um, B twelve analog. So it kind of looks like a B twelve, but doesn't have all the mm-hmm. properties of a B twelve. And these B12 cobalamides, cobalamides don't, necess- yeah, don't necessarily act the same mm-hmm. way in our body. And we, I guess I don't know enough science mm-hmm. about the nitty gritty of it, but the idea that I've come across is that mm-hmm. they don't allow your body to use it the same way. So you don't get the same benefit from eating a seaweed form of it. Mm-hmm. So I think for most vegans, mm-hmm. if you aren't getting any B12 or if you measured it and it's quite low, then it's one of those things you really have to consider mm-hmm. supplementing. And, and we're not just saying that B12 deficiency only occurs in vegetarians or vegans. They do also occur in people who eat animal products for various other reasons. And I actually, in my practice, see both B12 deficiencies in patients who are vegetarian, vegan, and also those who are not. So that's why I think um, it's very individual and B12 is very easy to test. There are uh, other markers of 
rather than just B12 in the serum because we know that it tends to underestimate the deficiency status if we just test B12 on its own. So there are other more sensitive tests like active B12 and also homocysteine, which is a metabolite um, dependent on B12 that can or be tested serum in blood. And blood um, methylmalonic acid, which is MMA. So if you're interested in getting tested, you can mm-hmm. talk to your doctors yeah. about getting these tests to see what levels you're at. Mm-hmm. And I would say generally err on the higher yeah. end of the range because B12 is still a water-soluble vitamin. So you can't really overdose it. Your body will just pee mm-hmm. it out if there's more than it needs. So erring on the high side, yeah. Expensive pee. On the high side is probably not a bad idea because it's so critical to everything mm-hmm. the body needs. It's important mm-hmm. for nerve functioning. It's important for um, making the energy and it's energy in methylation, which does a whole lot of other stuff. Um, and what I see commonly yeah. as a psychiatrist in my practice are people who present with depression, anxiety, and panic attacks when they're B12 mm-hmm. deficient. Mm. And there are more than a handful mm-hmm. of cases now where the patients have, um, you know, after much discussion and, in, and you know, asking them to reevaluate mm-hmm. their diet, they made the decision to try and eat, you know, some eggs and some fish and focusing on more um, uh, foods that are higher in B12. And they don't need medication. Mm-hmm. Their panic attacks still go away. Their moods lift. Uh, they're less anxious. Yeah. Their memories back. They have less pain. And so I think if it mm-hmm. comes to the point where it becomes a pathology, a symptom, then definitely get evaluated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also see a lot of people with chronic pain who maybe because they have had uh, a post-herpetic neuralgia where the nerves are initially attacked by a virus and they actually do much better in terms of recovery from that painful condition with B12. So regardless of sometimes whether or not they're actually low in B12, but obviously when the condition becomes more chronic, then the likelihood of them being B12 deficient are much higher. So yeah, people who have nerve palsies, so something, some people with Bell's palsy where you get... Uh, an attack of the facial nerve that can also cause drooping of the face. So it looks like a stroke, but it's not, but it's a specific type of neuropathy that's very responsive to B12. And actually drug companies so, know this. I think, There's yeah, a drug that's... company that makes methyl B12 and they make all the injectable forms of B12. And so it's actually a commonly mm-hmm. known um, treatment. Yeah. In Vitamin conventional medicine. Treatment. Yeah. So the... And, and I think the danger is to ignore it because if you ignore it for too long, you can get uh, irreversible, irreversible peripheral neuropathy as, as, uh, by, by leaving the deficiency untreated yeah, for a very long that time. That means by reversible, you can't go back. Yeah, regardless of whether or not your B12 is normal. So you really want to look into this and I think be mindful of it. And also uh, have some objective way of measuring it if uh, being just 100% plant-based is your choice uh, to, yeah. to move forward. So what about omega-3s? Because I just heard a very interesting podcast where actually our gut bacteria likes omega-3s as well. So fish protein apparently does mm. really well with gut bacteria. But um, most of the mm. omega-3s we advise people to get it from is from fatty fish. 
And so if you're a vegan and you're not yeah. eating fish, then they could consider mm-hmm. an algae form of omega-3. Yes. And also from the plant kingdom, mm-hmm. you can get um, ALA, which is, is it alpha-linolenic acid. Yeah. Alpha-linolenic acid, um, From yes. things like flaxseed. But then again, yes. you know, the, the whole thing about seeds and how well you can absorb it is one topic. And the other is from the ALA of plant flaxseed, most humans can convert 5% of that into EPA, which is the omega-3 that our body actually uses. Mm-hmm. And out of that 5%, only about 1% to 2% gets converted to mm-hmm. DHA, which is important for your brain. So the amount of flaxseed you have to eat probably to match uh, yes. someone's omega-3 intake from fish might be quite high. Thing which, I mean, in, in omega-3 fatty acids are actually very essential for healthy cell membranes. So if you think of all the cells in your body, each cell actually has to have a good cell membrane for good receptor function. So signaling the cells to do its job properly. And also because omega-3 fatty acids are really important in protecting your cholesterol from being oxidized and becoming a factor in uh, blocking heart arteries. So there there definitely is a role to play. And um, is there any way that we can measure omega-3 fatty acids? Yeah, there are companies that offer tests that measures omega-3 to omega-6 ratios. And they also break it down into different mm-hmm. the different uh, types of omega threes. So if that's something you're interested in. That's something we yeah. can you know you, you can ask your doctor about getting these tests done. But um, I mean, do people talk about a, yeah. a, the ideal ratio of you know between one to one and one to three of mm-hmm. omega threes to omega six? But in yes. a modern day society, it's unlikely to see people get to that ratio. Yeah, so most of the time I see Get that 1 to 10, yeah. which is really good, and then 1 to 20 or above. And there was mm-hmm. a patient who was mm-hmm. trying to manage his cardio uh, metabolic risk and was taking quite high doses of omega-3s, mm-hmm. and the closest he got was 1 to 4. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it's important to mm-hmm. target a number rather than knowing that in your diet to be mindful yeah. of getting an adequate amount and also reducing the amount of omega-6 intake from industrial seed and vegetable oils and processed food. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's it's hard to get everything tested just because of finance. But if you're a vegan, then it yes. wouldn't be a bad idea to try and supplement with some plant form of omega-3. Um, and mm-hmm. I mentioned about, you know, the conversion and some people genetically just don't convert very well. Mm-hmm. So if you're one of those unlucky ones and you want mm-hmm. to be a vegan, you can find out about your genetics. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it may just be even harder for that person. Yeah. So this is really where I think the whole debate about um, veganism, is it for everybody and versus the new area of personalized health I I think there's something to be said because a lot of research is based on large populations of people and we're trying to find out what is the best diet for everyone. But like you said, there are certain types of people with different gene variations that don't do well or have increased requirements for certain types of nutrients. 
So that means that we're all very different as well. So what is a good outcome in a large population doesn't always mean it's good for the individual. So, yeah, I think that's important to understand as well because we are now able to do different types of testing on things like our epigenetics, which are influenced by external environmental factors. So I, I think it's, it's worthwhile looking into those areas if you are thinking of excluding an entire section of, of, um, yeah, and of, of foods. I don't want to offend people by saying this, but this is my personal feeling, is that a lot of the diets out there are generally driven by either a mechanistic um, theory or a, a, a way of uh, absorbing certain nutrients. Mm -hmm. So, for example, people go on a paleo diet because they want to cut mm -hmm. out certain foods that in terms of the hunter-gatherer evolution, you're not supposed to be eating them. Um, but I feel veganism mm -hmm. is more driven by a belief in general. So it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. harder to argue that evolutionarily mm -hmm. we are supposed to eat 100% plants. Um, and also in terms of health outcome, mm -hmm. we do need certain things that are just so much harder to get in plants. So if people become a vegan and it's mostly for personal belief reasons, I don't have a problem with it. But again, knowing more about your body, your genetics, your environment, your um, exercise demands, and if you have any other health conditions, whether this um, diet is mm -hmm. compatible with what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and also finding someone, a practitioner, who you can work with to navigate that space is really important. Um, and going back to what you mentioned about before in terms of humans and the, the way that we've developed and how we are able to eat different types of foods, I often wonder, you know, for us, we actually have options to eat a whole different variety of foods. So it also always makes me wonder when people say, you know, cutting out plants or, you know, only eating this food or going low carb or ketogenic is the only way. I think our bodies are actually really adaptable and it adapts to the different foods because we have a very strong survival mechanism. So it could mean that certain times of the year, we actually don't have as much access to uh, plants on the ground because there might be too much snow. So in those times, maybe we hunt animals and we eat animals. And then when it comes to springtime, when the ground thaws or the snow snow thaws and plants start to grow, then we may actually have the option of eating different types of herbs and plants and berries and fruits and vegetables. So I think our bodies are actually able to adapt to a variety of different types yeah. of foods and nutrients. So another um, nutrient I want to ask you about is iron, because there's heme iron, which is mostly from animal mm. source. And non-heme iron which is the form found in plants and as humans we use heme iron mm -hmm. anything that we consume from the plant kingdom has to be converted yes. so any thoughts on this mm -hmm. there's also again um, the issue with iron deficiency without anemia which often is missed because when blood tests are done for iron deficiency a lot of the times we're just looking which is at the, last the hemoglobin, which, yes, which is often the last 
stage of iron deficiency is that your red blood cells um, become depleted in iron. So there are other stages of iron deficiency where you can still be symptomatic. So things like fatigue, things like um, depression, um, issues with nail growth, uh, constipation, uh, those types of symptoms, forgetfulness, uh, yeah, something called pica, or eating anything that's like non-food. Eating dirt, yeah. <laughs> non-foods, yeah, something called pagophagia. That's called that's known as ice eating. So all these and restless leg syndrome, for example. I mean, there there are numerous types. There's numerous symptoms associated with iron deficiency even before you become anemic. So it's important to not just look at the hemoglobin level or the blood count, but to actually do a full iron panel and look at also how much iron storage you have. So ferritin levels uh, are important and looking at the total iron binding protein. And these are all blood tests that can be run in a standard lab. So looking at the different levels of binding proteins and ferritin, then we can get a better picture of whether or not you're actually how getting enough of this in your diet. I explain it to patients is imagine your ferritin is a reservoir and you can store the iron there. So it takes some time for a drought to deplete the levels mm. of the reservoir so it's low enough to show up in other blood markers. So ferritin can be quite a sensitive marker for initial mm-hmm. stages of iron deficiency. And then if you look at your blood test and you see hemoglobin, mm-hmm. normally there's a bunch of numbers underneath and it correlates to MCV, MCHC and so on. So these are actually how the numbers describe mm-hmm. the shape of the red cells. So before the numbers of the cells go down, the shape of them changes. So in iron deficiency anemia, you see these numbers go down because there's no point in making a huge boat if there's nothing to put in it. So the body economizes by making smaller boats so that you have smaller Smaller uh, heme (laughs) compounds to put in it. And so these are initial numbers Mm -hmm. that your doctor can help you look at and mm-hmm. figure out if you're on the way yeah. to becoming iron deficient. So before you get to the rock bottom, you, sh- you can remedy it. Yeah. And I think it's also important to get a doctor to look at it because there are certain genetic conditions like uh, thalassemia minor, where you can have these similar looking markers, but your iron levels are completely normal. So you don't want to be supplementing with iron in those types of conditions because you can also get iron overload where yeah. iron actually becomes I think quite the double, toxic to your body. Uh, wacky with if you are a vegan that is both B12 <laughs> and iron deficient, and I should correct myself, if you're a human person on mm. any diet where you're both B12 and iron deficient, yeah. you, your numbers may not actually show up that bad because the MCV in the iron deficiency is small, but then in a B12 deficiency, it's large. So they kind of cancel each other out. And so you don't see these early yes. signs. So that's why taking yep. a history is very important because you're not treating just the lab markers. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're treating the person, the symptoms, and you're also looking at what could be the triggers and what could be the reasons for their deficiencies because it may not just be their diet. Eating it could somewhere. be actually that they have been stressed for a period of time, yeah, or they have heavy menstrual bleeding, um, or they're a heavy exerciser, yeah. female athlete. Yeah, or they might have a gut infection where they're actually depleting their iron from their diet. So I think nutrition and those things are part of the picture. I think we have to look a little bit beyond that too. So 
Yeah, I think that's a really important mineral. And the other one I also yes. want to mention a little bit is carnitine. So it's, I, I do see this sometimes in, in patients who are not eating much animal protein, not, not vegan, but they tend to limit their animal protein because they're afraid of the uh, association with uh, heart disease and cancer. So carnitine is actually really important for your ability to use fatty acids in the body. It uh, actually shuttles the fatty acids into your powerhouse, uh, which is your mitochondria that makes energy. So again, a lot of symptoms of fatigue can come about. And this could be a really big issue. So people might just feel tired all the time. Um, they can also have confusion, issues with focusing. They can also even have high cholesterol because you don't actually have that particular nutrient to utilize yeah. the fats in your body. Actually, that made me think about another uh, nutrient that starts with a C called choline. And choline is something mm -hmm. that's very important in the body because it makes something called acetylcholine, which is a memory uh, chemical. And mm -hmm. it makes phosphatidylcholine, which is involved yeah. in all the cell membranes in your body. So each cell has a, a membrane around it and mm -hmm. phosphatidylcholine is important to make that and also to dilute your gallbladder yeah. content so the bile juice doesn't become stagnant mm -hmm. and, and sludge, like sludge and, and you don't get gallstones sludge, or infections yeah. there. And you don't get gallstones. So this, this is... Mm easier to get in animal produce and a high amount of it can be found in egg yolks so that's why mm -hmm. you know back in the day when people were afraid of eating egg yolks because of mm -hmm. cholesterol actually egg yolks are a really good source of choline and another plant source choline, of choline yeah. is lecithin so you can find lecithin in soy or sunflower which is commonly available as a supplement so if you have symptoms such as mm -hmm. memory issues or you know your I guess you don't have a specific symptom for membrane dysfunction. Gallbladder disease, or you have gallstones. Um, there are two reasons. Yeah. One is actually genetically, mm -hmm. you're not very good at making it. So the enzyme for making choline is called PEMT, mm -hmm. and um, the second is you're not mm -hmm. eating enough of it. So you can. Mm -hmm. uh, can you test with choline? I don't think you can commercially. Um, but what I do no, test, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that's profile. available. Mm -hmm. So uh, today I had a, a, a teenage girl mm -hmm. who came to me and she, I've been seeing her for a while. I've been working with another doctor on her gut. So she presented as a teenager with memory problems and, you know, tiredness and uh, gut issues and when we did her genetic test, she, her, she had a few methylation issues. And methylation is what drives choline production. But she mm. also had the double whammy gene for yeah. a, a slow um, choline production. Um, so we upped her mm. egg yolk intake. And uh, I gave her alpha GPC, which is a mm -hmm. more like a brain form of choline. So you can, you can supplement. Um, we tried the soy lecithin, yeah. but she didn't like it in smoothies. So we kind of had to abandon that idea. But today when I saw her, and I've been seeing her for almost <laughs> a year now, today was the first day she was able to follow a conversation in the consultation. Previously, her, she was not able to, to mm. actually have a conversation because her mind was just so fogged up. And today she was 
talking and she mm. was very measured and she followed the conversation. She gave great answers. She had new ideas. She wants to go to boarding school. Um, I, I'm, I'm looking at her, I'm like, oh my God, like, <laughs> that's so important. <laughs> it's so important. And that's such a dramatic just, difference. You know, yeah. Obviously, working on her gut was really important as well. And we're not 100% there. But today, I just felt like, Mm. you know something went off and it, it just made me really happy that such a simple thing yeah um made such a big difference and she mm. wasn't a vegan before even you know she was she was morely, more mostly uh, a pescatarian but we really had to up her egg yolk intake okay. and like you know minimum four day um yeah and this is i think really where the science in precision medicine is starting to come about because um, we know that different types of people also respond to drug therapy very differently. So you're probably more looking at this than I am because a lot of the psychiatric medications and also the different types of genetic variations that are in our population can uh, really tell you whether or not different types of um, drugs are more effective for different types of people. Yeah, is, is that right? I mean, I, so. I, I used to use those tests, but what they tell you, some of them are really important. Some of them are like, okay, you're going to have an allergic reaction to this, so don't do this. <laughs> um, but a lot of the times <laughs> it's just saying, okay, you're a fast metabolizer, you're a slow, slow metabolizer, so use more or less of this drug as directed by mm -hmm. your doctor. Um, and for some people, it may be helpful to use mm -hmm. those guidelines, but I've also had it somewhat mm -hmm. backfire because this patient has ha tried many many antidepressants and eventually we said okay you know what let's do the test and find out which one actually works for you and we mm -hmm. the, the results came out and she's like you know the only yeah. thing that worked for me was Prozac and it, it's in the red do not take category <laughs> so how much of it's placebo mm, how much wow. of it is just different times in their lives different stages and so I, I, I would rather focus my effort and my patient's money on nutrition and lifestyle changes rather than trying to figure out which is the best medicine for you. Obviously, medicine can be helpful, but you still need the foundations. You know, the, the medicine isn't giving yeah. you choline. The medicine is just pushing things around. Yeah. And I think this is also one of the criticisms of a lot of this type of genetic testing is that it can become very expensive and when you start to add on to different types of tests, then the, the cost actually adds up. And a lot of the times, these types of tests are not really covered by insurance because they're not considered as mainstream. So people can end up paying a lot of money to look at all these markers when effectively they really should probably look at their diet to begin with, try to optimize it as much as possible um, and, and look at you know, slowly changing into whole foods and sourcing yeah, quality and products. Unfortunately, the insurance company haven't mm -hmm. really caught up with it, but hopefully that will start to change. Yeah, so um, I think like one of, one of the areas that I also wanted to address again, like going back to what we uh, know in terms of um, a population-based optimal diet versus an individualized diet, um, is that I think that science is still becoming developed. Um, and I think that there are different companies that are collaborating together or different scientists who are collaborating together 
to look at how we can personalize not just nutrition, but also exercise, lifestyle, um, the timing of foods for each individual. And I think we're moving more and more towards trying to find out what is a healthy, optimal marker or diet for that person, rather than just looking at the whole entire population. So it's important to bear this in mind because a lot of people will use a different diet for a therapeutic outcome. So they might go vegan and say, okay, bloating is a lot better, digestion is a lot better. But just because that diet helped improve symptoms, is it actually optimal for this person long-term? So like you said before, if your patient who wasn't, you know, who, who had gut issues went on a vegan diet and she started to feel her gut symptoms were better, but then the problem is that her mood symptoms were still an issue. Then it's worthwhile going uh, a little bit, it's then worthwhile going to investigate a little bit further and say, well, perhaps there are other types of nutrients that are missing from just excluding a, a whole entire and food group. And if you group. do do that, what we're trying to say is you can do it smarter. You can find ways to mitigate some mm. of these uh, potential pitfalls by doing some testing yeah. or just even if you don't do the testing yeah. there is very little downside to supplementing a b12 um some omegas mm-hmm. and some codeine yeah. and carnitine yeah so that's why i i think that it's important to evaluate when somebody does make a diet change for a period of time as to you know in the science that we know of is 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 it affecting nutrient absorption is it affecting gut microbiome you know, however you want to actually approach it, it's it's important to understand the the pros and cons of, of each choice. So that's really, you know, what we are trying to drive at. And, um, you know, for, for me personally, and I also understand for you also, Vanessa, that we both eat animal protein. I do, I feel very good on animal protein, um, but I also have days where I am vegetarian. And that's really the purpose for me there is just to have, give my gut a bit of a rest. Um, and at other times, I also eat a variety of different plants because we know that a lot of the negatives of eating animal protein can be mitigated by eating um, a substantial with amount it, yeah. of plant. And there are studies showing that, it. Um, yeah. you know, we didn't, you, you mentioned this earlier, that some people are worried about eating meat that causes cancer and heart disease. But when you eat it with plants, those mm. risks actually are mitigated by the plants. So nature is very wise yes. because it's, it's, yeah, it's balanced. Yes, it out. it's actually offered us the solutions. Humans are probably evolved to eat, but because we've now evolved to become more cerebral, we can make certain choices and like you said choices I think yeah just being just having a personalized diet doesn't mean it's the one diet for you forever because we're all changing we're our bodies in a constant yes. state of flux even yes. your health could be better some days and worse some days and then suddenly you get a disease of some sort and or you've been in an accident and you, you, you've broken something in your body and it needs healing. And I think rather being rigid about any diets and some people yes. don't even mm-hmm. like the word diets, you know, that it is kind of somewhat has a negative con- yeah. connotation these days, you know, it, it's a food pattern and mm. you, you, we need yeah. to be smart and yeah. that's what humans do. We're not stronger than animals. We're not faster than animals. You know, we don't have lectins like plants, but we have brains. <laughs> we have very big brains. 
And so being smart about your diet and actually <laughs> adapting it to different stages in your life. I think even if you were to try different diets, it's still a journey yeah. of finding out what's best for you at that time. And I think flexibility is important in everything mm. we do rather than being so rigid about... Mm. Um, rigid. Yeah. yeah, because I think as the body changes, like I said before, you know, certain things that we eat also causes the body to adapt and change. And so when that happens and we need to assess, okay, then do we need to shift back to a pattern of eating that is more sustainable and more realistic and more practical, more affordable? And so I think it's important to evaluate that at different time points rather than thinking, well, I feel better uh, about this condition on this diet. And so therefore, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Um, you know, uh, our bodies are, are not like that and life is full of changes and, and challenges. So things happen and um, it's important, yeah, to, to keep, in mi- keep in mind those, those yeah. um, so ideas. I think we successfully navigated uh, mm-hmm. the topic of a vegan diet today. <laughs> Hopefully yeah. without offending um, too many I people. controversy is not a bad thing. <laughs> you know, that's how humans and yeah evolve. that's it's how made. questions are asked that's how research yeah. is you know directed you know it's, yeah. it's curiosity and as well what we're trying to do here is just that raise awareness and help people start thinking about it yeah and you know for between the two of us we've worked with people who are vegan vegetarian paleo ketogenic um and i think no, actually, <laughs> not yet. So <laughs> that could be that that could surface at any time, considering you know the popularity the in in the yeah, media the of these diet. types so maybe of diets. We could touch on that on another podcast. So <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be interesting to talk about that as well, and um, again talk about sort of some of the pros and cons. And it's really always about trying to find. Um, the balance and present it to our audience uh, as much as possible and we we have our own diets but it doesn't mean that we prescribe what works for us to everybody else we really want to get a clear objective picture of what works for each person because ultimately we just want people to thrive and to be able to feel energetic and we know that they're there it's, it's a very yeah. different approach for each person Great. let us know how <laughs> yeah. you um, found the topic but, uh, or if you have any other topics that you'd like us to cover you can email us and we'll do our best yeah all right next so, time. thanks Bye. guys Fluid. You can find us at anantawellbeing.com and follow us at anantawellbeing on Facebook and Instagram. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review to help other like-minded people find us. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice and is not intended to treat or diagnose any medical condition. This podcast and its producers disclaim any responsibility for adverse effects that result from the use of this information. Opinions of guests are their own and are not endorsed by this podcast. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions. We do not make any representation or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. 
Both producers and guests may have direct or indirect interest in the products and services mentioned. If you think you have a medical condition, please consult a licensed physician.